Hello, just before we start the March Extra edition of the Jodcast, I thought I'd give you another one of my little questions just for you to think about throughout the show. So here it is. The number 100 can be factorised into 4 times 25. And you note that neither 4 nor 25 has a zero in it. Now, can you do the same thing to 1,000? Make it the multiple of two numbers, neither of which have a zero in them. Then my question to you is this. What's the lowest power of 10 for which there are two factors in which you can't factorise it into two numbers which don't contain a zero? And what's the maximum power of 10 that you can for where there are two factors which don't contain a zero? The answer, after the show. The Judcast. We're in your ears, we're in your head. With David Alt, Tim O'Brien and Nick Rattenbury. The Judcast. March Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the March Extra Edition of the Jodcast. And joining me today is Nick up in Manchester. Hi Nick. Hello Dave and hello everyone out there. Hello. I'm afraid we don't have Stuart this uh we don't have Stuart this issue because he's gallivanting around Europe as usual. It's all right for some. Well, I think he, I think he's actually working. I think he's working in Italy, but we'll we'll just say he's gallivanting because he's not here to defend himself. Absolutely, aren't he? So, coming up in this issue, we have an interview with Maria Rose Cioni from the University of Hertfordshire on metallicity. We have some feedback from the listeners. All of the news about what's coming up in upcoming episodes, because there's going to be some very interesting stuff coming along soon. Yes, indeed. But first, we'd like to address some of the feedback that we have been getting uh, from our listeners. Because, uh, as you may have heard, STFC funding cuts may impact on the e-Merlin project at Jodrell Bank Observatory. Now, many of you will have read or heard about threats to cut funding to UK astronomy projects, including eMerlin, a major project nearing completion in which Jodrell Bank Observatory will play a key role. There have been many reports suggesting that, as a result of these cuts, Jodrell Bank Observatory will cease operating. Here's Dr Tim O'Brien, who is Head of Outreach at Jodrell Bank Observatory, to explain the situation as it stands. Yeah, so um, the emailing network is actually uh, is this network of, of up to seven radio telescopes that spread about uh, across 217 kilometres across England. Um, so it's our, it's in fact, it's the UK's national radio astronomy facility, and it's operated from Jodrell Bank. So these these seven telescopes sort of work together um, as a as a large interferometer to give these sort of high resolution, these sharp views of of astronomical phenomena. Um, and uh, at Jodrell, there's basically two big telescopes that take part in that. There's the there's the there's the Lovell telescope, of course, the the largest telescope in the in the network, and there's the Mark II. And then there's a further further five telescopes. Uh, and and Merlin itself as a network has been running for some years now. But the eMerlin uh, system is a new upgrade to that, where we where we re- we've replaced the the links, the radio links between the telescopes, um, with optical fibres. And what that will enable is it will enable far more data to be transferred 
um, per second to Jodrell and actually allow us to look across a bigger chunk of the radio spectrum. It'll, in fact, we, we expect it will make the whole telescope about 30 times more sensitive than the old Merlin system, which is an incredible um, jump in sensitivity. Now, what's happened recently is that uh, on March the 3rd, um, the, the government body that's responsible for funding research in astronomy in the UK, it's called the Science and Technology Facilities Council, STFC, um, published the result of a review of a huge number of projects right across the uh, right across the whole program, um, and partly it's in the context of them having to uh, uh, having to look at uh, filling a bit of a, a, bud a budget gap they've had that's been discussed in the news we as, and on the Jodcast in fact for a, a few months now. Um, so they're having to look at what projects might be might be cut. And it turned out that on that on that initial uh, classification process, the emailing project was was classified as low priority for them, and therefore un, under threat of being cut. Um, now they do actually say that, all, that although all the projects that they looked at were were doing good science and in principle were of sufficient quality to be funded, um, they just don't have enough resources to fund them all at the moment. So unfortunately, they've got to, you know they're having to make some hard decisions. Now, of course, we don't agree with the of the, the prioritisation that's been put on it. We we of course think that that low priority is not it's not low priority, and it should in fact be seen as a much higher priority. And and uh, that decision um, that that would lead to, which is that emailing funding will be cut from from April two thousand and nine, uh, isn't a final decision yet. There is now a period of consultation with the whole research community. Um, which ends on on March the twenty first, so it's not far in the future. So at the moment, what we're doing is we're obviously getting together, we're hoping that um, scientists and in the UK community will support our view that in fact e Merlin, this new telescope which we haven't even uh, switched on yet, which we switch on next year, um, should be supported. Um, the running cost should be provided by uh, STFC, and, um, and 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 in fact that that therefore that that decision will not take place, and the emailing will be will be allowed to operate uh, from uh, from uh, 2009 onwards um there's a question mark i mean one of the one of the things people ask is is obviously what would happen if that decision were to be made and as i say it's not a decision that's been made yet it still is uh, under review um, and following the end of the consultation there'll be a period where those where people's views are taken into account uh, before a final decision is made However, if that decision were to be made, then it wouldn't mean we'd be unable to exploit emailing. At uh, the time emailing op becomes operational, we'll have spent £8 million, it's basically spent now, um, on, on that upgrade. So we, we wouldn't be able to ex exploit its capabilities. It'll be basically the, the world's most powerful linked array of radio telescopes. Um, the UK will, will effectively lose its major observational capability in radio astronomy, um, since this is the national facility for radio astronomy in the UK. And that would be a pity because it's a subject which UK astronomers, um, largely at Jodrell Bank in Cambridge, pioneered more than 50 years ago now and in which we still play a leading role. Um, quite importantly, we'll no longer the UK will no longer be able to participate in, in European and global networks of large radio telescopes. So part of the funding is for something called JIVE. It's the Joint Institute for VLBI in Europe, which organises the European VLBI network. So we won't be able to put... Uh, our resources into that, and and that's that would be a significant loss to the European um, community, uh, and therefore we'll we'll risk losing uh, what we have now, which is a, which is a world leading role in in this area of science. And you know, looking forward to the future, um, we've recently been chosen to host the International Project Office for the Square Kilometre Array, 
um, you know, basically as on, on on the back of the sorts of work we've been doing with 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 telescopes like like eMerlin. And so, you know, there is a strategic risk to to our you know world leading role in in those sorts of major projects for the future. SKA itself not not really expected to begin construction until something like 2013, and and not completed till maybe 2020. Um, practically, um, basically six radio telescopes will be closed down. There's, there's the Mark II at Jodrell, and the five remote telescopes. Um, and uh, and in terms of Jodrell Bank Observatory um, itself, remember Jodrell Bank Observatory is now part of the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, which includes a site in Manchester. So this, the astrophysics group is is much larger than just Jodrell Bank Observatory. But if we talk about the observatory itself for the moment, um, since E Merlin is actually the main activity at the observatory, uh, withdrawal funding for E Merlin would would clearly place a serious question mark over how sustainable the observatory was as a site for active scientific observations. So I think that's where we are. Um, you know, the consultation is going on now, um, and you know, as I say, we're we would put you know our own views uh, as a, as researchers here at Jodrell into that, and we expect and and hope that uh, other astronomers who would be hoping and looking forward to using E Merlin will also uh, put their views in. And perhaps just one last note is just to say that, that of course this is E Merlin and, and Jodrell is only one part of uh, of a much bigger picture. Um, because this is this is a, a review and so on that's, that's affecting a large number of projects across a wide array of, uh, of, of, of astronomy and physics in the in the UK. It might be that Jodrell is perhaps the most visible example of this, but it's certainly the case that that uh, it's not just us that are uh, that are that are entering into this consultation period at the moment. And many of you have written to us here at the Jodcast, expressing concern and support. Thank you to everyone who has written to us. We do appreciate it, and we are making sure that your comments will be forwarded to strengthen the already strong support shown by the public towards Jodrell Bank. Now, several listeners have asked whether the funding cuts will directly affect the Jodcast. Here's Dr Nicholas Rattenbury. Now, many listeners have asked us what's happening to Jodrell Bank Observatory in general, and in particular, the Jodcast. I should point out that the Jodcast is funded by STFC Public Understanding of Science, budget and we have got our budget for this year we have got funding for the jodcast for 2008 so stfc funds public outreach of understanding of science from a separate pot of money and we have got our funding for this year so we're okay for the time being thanks nick so if you want to learn more about what has happened we suggest that you visit the website of professor paul crowther at sheffield university which documents the funding crisis and is updated regularly on his website are links to enable you to express your concern directly to your MP, and we'll put the link for that on this month's show notes. We will continue to report on the situation, but meanwhile, please do keep your feedback coming in on this issue. It is a fast-moving issue. It has exercised a lot of people around the world. Uh, do please keep your feedback coming in to us because it is important. We will uh, forward that on to uh, the right people to make sure that your voices are heard. Absolutely. Uh, many listeners saying that Jodrell Bank is very close to their hearts. People from around Manchester, amateur astronomers, professional astronomers. And of course, it's very dear to all of us as well, having worked there and, uh, and lived there. And so now to move on to our interview for this issue. Maria Rosa Cioni from the University of Hertfordshire spoke to Nick. Astronomers have an interesting definition of metallicity. Here's Maria Rosa to tell us more. 
my research is mainly to try to understand uh, uh, galaxies in which we can see individual stars. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and one of the things is to measure the metallicity in the galaxy. And, uh, and one way to do it is to use these stars as a group uh, and to use their properties to, to measure what is the metallicity of the galaxy. And, and because usually you have lots of stars in a galaxy, you know, millions or even more, depending on which galaxy you look at, uh, you can think of, of looking at the stars in groups in different locations in the galaxy and then finding out the metallicity and then study if the metallicity is different in different positions. What do we mean by metallicity, though? It's, it's a mm. difficult sort of concept. Yeah, yeah. Metallicity, uh, well, in the general way, it means how much metals you have. So metals are, of course, iron. This is the our top metal. You know, mm-hmm. Most people will think of it, oh, metals, iron. Uh, but there are also other metals. You know, there's oxygen, silicon. And, and in astronomy, uh, metallicity is a very interesting concept that it's not the same as in other scientific disciplines. So everything that is heavier than hydrogen and helium is metallicity. It's a very simple definition, isn't it? We say, oh, is it heavier <laughs> yeah. than hydrogen or helium? It's a metal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the thing is that we get away with this definition because uh, when you look at these metals, normally iron and, and heavy elements dominates. And, uh, and so if you neglect uh, some lower... Uh, so let's say some lighter elements in your big, you know, group. You don't make a very big mistake. You know, is that when you go and compare these metals with the hydrogen or the helium, uh, that is important. And mm-hmm. so you don't want to make a mistake in that sense. You know, you don't want to put everything together. So you want to distinguish the metals from the hydrogen and the helium. Right. That's mostly what we uh, what. Well, what we care. I mean, some people may disagree because they are only study carbon, for example, or some people are only study calcium. Or so, it depends really what you're looking at. But when you talk about metallicity of galaxies, then you usually talk about iron or um, everything else heavier than hydrogen and helium. And the metals in this case in the galaxy, when we talk about the metallicity of a galaxy, mm-hmm. we're talking about the metals in individual stars. Is that true? Uh, we are talking about the metals uh, that were there before the stars formed. Mm-hmm. You know, the metals in the, in the cloud out of which the star that you are observing today formed. And of course, uh, within the stars, when the stars evolve, uh, the metals can change. But some metals, like iron, for example, will will be very hard to change. You know, you need to reach very late uh, stages of evolution, uh, like when the star, it's almost approaching supernova, you know, to to synthesize iron within the stars and so Mm -hmm. to change the iron abundance. Uh, So if you look at stars that are in earlier evolutionary phases, like our sun, for example, you know, the iron that you see there, it's usually the iron that was there when the the sun formed, you know, out of that cloud of... uh, metals and hydrogen and helium at the formation. So iron and heavier metals mm. would have come from very evolved stars, the stars which have gone through their life, probably ended in a supernova or maybe a planetary nebula, and there were, there were uh, nuclear processes which meant that you got heavier elements. 
Exactly, exactly. So this is very important because um, this is how the galaxy gets the metals. And, uh, and that's why it's interesting to study the distribution of these metals because you can already see where there are more metals. So maybe something happened in the history of the galaxy. You know, maybe in that part there was a supernova explosion or there were some other more complicated um, things happening. Uh, and it's also interesting to look at different galaxies that have a different content of metal. And uh, what people are very interested nowadays is to look at galaxies that contain very little metals uh, because they want to observe the galaxies that are very old. So try to, to go back to the early evolution of our universe in general, you know, because at the very beginning there were no heavy metals. Mm. You know, the heavy metals, the very first heavy metals were synthesized inside the stars. So if you look in places where there are very little metals, then you hopefully are looking in places that are very pristine. Right. Yeah. So, of course, uh, a galaxy which is comprised of stars which are very, very metal poor uh, would mean that they were formed from gas which had not been enriched, let's say, with uh, metals produced by stars going through an entire cycle of life. Exactly. So, as you say, they would be very, very old because they were would have been, I guess, one of the the, the, the starting galaxies in the universe. They yeah. would have been formed from, as you say, pristine material. Yeah, exactly. They're very difficult to find. Mm -hmm. You know, this is really milestone you know also stars that contain very very little metal they're very difficult to find but uh, why is that is that because I mean, presumably they would be very very far away because we know that greater distances greater time looking back to the beginning of the galaxy or is that not true not necessarily in our own galaxies there are very metal poor stars in the halo of our own galaxy mm -hmm. and um, and that depends on how you believe galaxy formed because if you think that our galaxy for example for it's a big galaxy it's a big spiral galaxy if it formed uh, um, by accreting smaller galaxies it means that these smaller galaxies were didn't contain much metal to start with and then the metals came afterwards during the evolution of the galaxy so in our galaxy itself there will be signatures of the origin of the galaxy and we know that there are very metal poor stars hmm. we just don't know why they're there and where they came from you know did they form in situ let's say you know did they form there or are they coming from disrupted galaxies that were uh, merged into our galaxy or so i think that the signature of uh, let's say of the early origin of the universe is a little bit everywhere hmm. So it's interesting to say that when you look at different parts of our own galaxy or even external galaxies, you look at different parts of those galaxies, you can see different metallicities. You can see the evidence of some kind of accretion or formation event. Mm -hmm. And one possibility is that these galaxies have accreted or uh, eaten a passing galaxy which had, on average, a different metallicity, had stars with different metallicities. And you can still see the remnants the undigested bits of that of that galaxy uh, in in the in the parent galaxy, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. In principle, because uh, uh, the chemical composition, you know, when you form the stars at a certain moment in time, 
it's there, right? It's an imprint that you have on these stars. And these stars, during their evolution, they move. You know, stars are not static. They mm. have their own motion. And uh, sometimes they're even pushed into larger scale motion by the galaxy to which they belong. So they will not necessarily be in the same position to where they formed, uh, but they will still maintain their chemical imprints from the original composition and also the one that will you know, will be modified during the, the evolution of the star. So, you can still see the evidence, though, of uh, an accretion ah, event yes, in yes, the yes, metallicity yes, signatures yes, of these stars. Yes. So you look and see, oh, look, there's a stream of stars there, all with roughly the same metallicity, exactly. which is very different to the rest of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. And you can say, well, that's obviously a merger event. It's been yeah. uh, eaten up by this, yeah. this this bigger galaxy, usually. Yeah. You can try to find, in fact, explanations. You know, if you have... A, um, stars in a certain position that are much more matter-rich or much more matter-poor, uh, you can see how it is their distribution with respect to the size of the galaxy, to the morphology of the galaxy. And then you can think of, if this distrib- is this distribution consistent with uh, one galaxy uh, evolving in isolation, for example? Or uh, if you cannot explain it this way, do you require that the galaxy accretes um, external galaxies or to, to create such a dis- spatial distribution as well as a metallicity distribution. Mm-hmm. So this is something that we cannot yet answer precisely because metallicity is very important, but you also need to, an information about the motion of the stars. The kinematics, how the, the stars kinematics, are moving. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you need to put all the ingredients together and, and also the age is quite important. So you need to know that the star they are looking at, they are actually, they did form all at the same time. Although metallicity can help you there because if you're measuring the metallicity at the moment that the star formed and if the metallicity is the same, you can assume that this group of stars formed at the same time. Mm. Or they went through enrichment in the galaxy in the same way, right? So... Uh, they have some similarities. Um, but then you are the stars moving coeval, mm-hmm. you know, within the galaxy? Was this a group associated to itself or it just happens to be there for some reason? So I think we are. you need to put more information together. But you still can pick apart a galaxy in terms of its... Uh, I think the term is resolved stellar populations. You can see the individual stars in 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 groups within a galaxy and say, well, they seem to be associated with each other. Yes. And yes. metallicity is one way of doing it, but as you yes. say, you've got to be careful of their ages as well because they all have an effect on what you observe. How do you observe metallicity in a star anyway? Ah, uh, well, you can, in a star. Okay, mm. so if you see you if you see your star, uh, if you're thinking about one single star, then the best possible way to measure the metallicity or let's say the abundance of the heavy element like iron and oxygen and so on is to take a spectrum. Mm -hmm. To take a spectrum and and look exactly at the lines produced by iron and by the other heavy elements. This is the most accurate. Uh, But you need uh, instruments that that are quite powerful. So... uh, you cannot do it um, very far away. You know, you can do it for stars that are relatively close to us in our galaxy or um, in the Magellanic Clouds or in galaxies that are not too far away. Um, so that's for each single star. But if you are interested in the metallicity of a group of stars, 
Of course, you can take a spectra of each star in the group, but sometimes this is not feasible because it will take you too long, or uh, and, and it's also uh, you know a balance how much time you want to spend observing your stars and how much will you will gain mm. out of them. So the best way, if you want to find the metallicity of a group of stars, is to do it in a statistical way to take instead of spectra images, images a different wavelength. And then to combine uh, this um, emission that you get in broadband filters um, together and study colors and magnitudes and how the star um, show up in this color and magnitudes and to try to relate their color and their magnitude to the metallicity. So taking a spectra is essentially the finest measurement you can take. It splits up all the light into the finest possible grades, depending on how good your, your spectrograph is. But taking just Im images in different colors, so very large bands of color, so blue, green, red, mm -hmm. is essentially like a very crude spectra uh, spectrograph, isn't it? I mean, you're just, yeah. okay, so you, you don't see individual lines, but you get a, a slightly different color if a galaxy is predominantly metal-rich or metal-poor. Exactly, yeah. Normally, uh, the metallicity affects your galaxy in the way that if it is metal-rich, you will have uh, bluer colors, and if it is metal-poor, you will have redder colors. So presumably that means that uh, uh, a more metal-rich galaxy or a galaxy comprised of more metal-rich stars, those stars individually will be, in general, hotter. Uh, yes, exactly. exactly. So, so you're just looking at temperature differences. When we talk about taking a spectrum and looking at the lines in a stellar spectrum, going back to stars now and looking at the metal abundances, how much metal is in each star, we're talking about absorption lines here, aren't we? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. You're talking about the absorption, you know, if there is um, an abundance of iron, let's say, in the way, mm -hmm. <laughs> in, the, in, in the star, then it's going to absorb uh, the light exactly yeah. at, that, at that particular Those specific frequency. wavelengths yeah. you know, due yeah. to uh, uh, yeah. atomic levels of yeah. iron or whatever metal that you're, yeah. that, that you're looking at. So that tells you that, that there is some of, let's say, iron in the stellar atmosphere. Does it tell you how much there is? Um, it does, well, of course, uh, you can't do everything with observations alone. You need to have models mm -hmm. uh, that reproduce your observations. And the advantage is that in models, you, you know how you construct your models and, uh, and you know what you did uh, put in in order to produce an absorption line of a given intensity and, uh, and at a given place. So it's the combination of the two together that tells you how much iron there is. So you do have from your observations of an observational spectrum, mm. you have a depth or a strength or an intensity of, exactly. of the observation line which gives you a handle on mm. how much of that particular element is there. Mm -hmm. Combined with your model, mm -hmm. you get a better idea of exactly you know what the ratio of the, the metal is to everything mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. mm. And so how do you link that to taking broadband color images of entire galaxies? I mean, it seems that you're going from this very fine, um, wonderfully uh, accurate, let's say, or, or specific wavelength measurement with a spectrograph mm -hmm. to taking big sort of uh, broad images across a long, large chunk of wavelengths, mm -hmm. blue, green, red, and then making some statement about the metallicity mm -hmm. of, of galaxies because you can't observe, you know, 
billions of stars with it with a spectrograph mm -hmm. it'll take too long so you take these these individual color images of galaxies how do you um do the statistical approach how how confident are you that uh, this um, works yeah that it depends very much on the type of stars you use to do that uh, there are different stars uh, that you can use a different wavelength um that will will let's say have a metallicity signature for example, if you take evolve giant stars, uh, these are stars that are quite old, uh, let's say quite evolved. Uh, they are post main sequence. So these are objects that have well finished uh, to synthesize hydrogen in their core. And, uh, and they are actually burning hydrogen in, in a shell that surrounds the core of helium for the red giants or for the more extreme asymptotic giants. You have stars that are synthesizing hydrogen and helium in shells around the carbon-oxygen-rich core. So this is more or less the type of stars that you can use, for example. Mm -hmm. and, um, and these objects, uh, especially if you look at them in the near-infrared, uh, they will have different colors according to their chemistry in the outer parts, in their surface layers. So some stars will be dominated by carbon molecules, other stars will be dominated by oxygen molecules. And, um, and already, if you're able to distinguish these two types, you can say that in one place there are perhaps more carbon stars and in another place there are less. And, uh, and this is already an information about the metallicity in that particular location. Hmm. So it's all a statistical argument. And of course, you need to calibrate because in, with images, you are counting stars. So the first thing you need to do is to find the calibration of your number counts versus the iron abundance. And, uh, and that has been done. So that's why you are more or less confident that you are counting stars properly. Mm -hmm. uh, so you need to take, in this case, the metallicity, so the iron abundance measured by other means, spectra, as we said before. And, uh, and then you correlate that with the number of carbon stars, for example. And, uh, and that you can see that there is a relation and that tells you what is the behavior uh, of your metallicity versus the number of carbon stars. What's the main goal of this research? What are you really hoping to learn with all the observations of metallicity in all these galaxies? In all the galaxies. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the bottom line is to learn how the galaxies formed and how they evolved. We know that metallicity changes during the evolution of a galaxy, and we know uh, that there are disomogeneities uh, in the metallicity distribution within a given galaxy. Uh, and this was probably not the case when the galaxy formed, or maybe it was. So these are the kind of questions we want to answer. So how, how the galaxy came to exist as it is nowadays, that we observe it with this disomogeneity as a metallicity. Very exciting. So thank you very much for taking the time to explain your research to us. Welcome. Thanks, Nick. Now, you may have noticed that at the beginning of the show, we didn't have all of your feedback from iTunes and everything like that. Well, we will be bringing you a full roundup of April. However, I just thought that I would bring you some news from Facebook, because the Facebook group, as of the time of recording, now has 107 members. That's fantastic. Which is a huge increase from the last time, so that's great. Keep on joining, keep on posting on the wall. And that's what uh, Penny Jackson and Kate Mormon have done. 
they posted on the wall. Penny Jackson said, I saw the lunar eclipse. Am I the only person who did? Uh, and she's down at the University of Bristol. Uh, Kate Mormon uh, from Manchester said, uh, says, hello, I was without the Jodcast for six months as I couldn't download them, but have finally caught up. So she's missed out on lots of stargazing, but she's listening. She's been listening for over a year now. And although she's not a physics person, rather a pathologist, she absolutely loves the show and finds it very interesting. She's even been trying to convert some of her medic friends and is slowly getting there. Yes, and like many of our listeners, uh, she's originally from Manchester and Jodrell Bank was her favourite place as a kid. So, special place in her heart. So, thank you very much for listening. Yes, do keep listening, Air, because in upcoming episodes we've got a number of special things coming your way. We are going to NAM, the National Astronomy Meeting 2008 in Belfast. Stuart and I will be there, and this is the biggest astronomy meeting in the UK astronomy calendar. There are going to be over 600 astronomers there, and we're going to try and catch up with them and bring you the latest in astronomy research. We will also be bringing you a special program all about E. Merlin, and also another special program all about the CMB, the Cosmic Microwave Background. So there's two special programs coming up on the Jodcast in future episodes, so do keep an eye out for those. Yes, we'll be letting you know when we're doing everything, and of course, if you want to hear interviews or if you want to hear about a particular topic within astronomy do give us an email and let us know what you want to hear because the Jodcast is made for you it's not made for us it's made for you we want to hear what you want to hear and then we can get on and do something about it that's right so do please send us your ideas your suggestions and your feedback via the webpage www.jodcast.net so either through the webpage by email send us a postcard or jump onto Facebook and write on the wall or send us a message via Facebook. So I'm afraid that brings this issue of the Jodcast to an end. But never fear, we will be back at the beginning of April to bring you, hopefully not a completely foolish, episode of the Jodcast. Very good. So we'll see you all then. Thank you very much for listening. Do tell your friends, do send us feedback, and we'll see you next time. Yes, you take good care of yourselves. Goodbye. Bye. So at the beginning of the show, I asked you what power of 10 could not be factorised into two numbers which didn't contain a zero, and what the maximum power of 10 is that could factorise into two numbers without a zero. Now, the eagle-eyed amongst you will have spotted that 4 and 25, uh, which is 10 squared, it's 2 squared times 5 squared. 1,000 you can uh, factorise into 8 times 125, 8 being 2 cubed, 125 being 5 cubed. Now the lowest power of 10, for which there is a 0 in the two factors, uh, 10 to the 8, because 5 to the 8 does actually contain a 0. And the maximum power of 10 so far that doesn't contain a 0 is 33. 10 to the power 33. So there you go. More questions next week. Cheers.